0: We're in the middle of Romans nine through eleven. We're going to spend four weeks. This is the second of four weeks that we're going to spend on this. And um, if you were here last week, you know we read through um, the entire that entire portion. We read through it all, and we uh, gave ourselves to to um, hold on. Got to find my place. memory. I'm ready. Um, so we, we've been going through 9 through 11. We read through the whole thing. So we get a feel of this pastoral letter that really has very difficult parts to it. Very difficult uh, things to try to understand. But we've given ourselves to that. And we're going to basically ask three questions as we go through. And this question is a really important question. Is, is, is this. Did, did God fail? And it, it seems like, of course, in church the answer has got to be No. Did he fail to keep his promises and his plan for history? Did it it get messed up somehow? But it's a question that was not the first time it's been asked in church, actually. Paul, in his letter, asks the question. Or assumes that we are asking the question, I should say. It's not as though the word of God has failed. Meaning, I bet you some of you are thinking that. But for Paul, this is not first a philosophical question. It's not a theodicy First, which is a logical argument in defense of God's goodness. There's nothing wrong with those things. But this is a letter to a new church who's trying to find its identity and find its place in the whole story of the Bible. How Jewish are we? How Gentile are we? Because they were a mixed group of people. How do we fit into God's story of redemption? Did God fail to keep his promises? And is that why we Gentiles are so involved in this? There's a problem. Paul certainly says, no, of course he didn't fail. And yet Paul is the one who starts the whole part of 9 through 11 out with, things aren't exactly working out like I thought they would. He's upset. Remember, he says he wishes that things were flowing differently. He wishes all of his fellow Jews would have believed in the promised Messiah. In fact, he wishes that he would be even accursed, separated from the Christ he knows and loves that his brothers, his kinsmen, might know the salvation that comes from God through their very line, son of David, son of God. And so god did God fail It's not an a- absurd question. Now, there's a one way to answer it that is unsatisfying, but I think we should put it out there. And that is this way. Well, God, you see, you know, he just like purposefully limited himself. And the world's, world's run amok because of this self-limitation. It created a vacuum for chaos to reign. And so he kind of gave up his sovereignty. Uh, and he was just hoping that the world would come out okay. And so he tried plan A, and he tried plan B, and he tried plan C, and he tried plan D, and hopefully you get down to plan J, Jesus, and this thing will work. That is not, in fact, what the scripture teaches. And Paul most certainly says, no. God has not and will not and cannot fail. God has never lost his power, and he's not working off alternative plans that were foiled by our cleverness as creatures. And yet the questions remain, and the difficulty or the problem remains. It's a same question I was asking Amanda's mom uh, when I was in high school about God's sovereignty, his control, and what seems like a really difficult world that we live in. And so in exploring that problem, she says... Georgia, the problem is clear, that Satan is bound and God is in control. Satan is bound and he has been subdued by God himself. He has him on a leash. The problem seems like, though, the leash is really long. I love the fresh honesty in that when she said it, even at that moment, because it gets at the way we experience the reality of our lives in light of the truths that we're told and we, it sets up that, that we can experience a difference in those things. Y'all, the Bible is an honest book. And God is kind to let us bring our questions to him. He lets us ask them. He doesn't always, he doesn't always answer in a way that, that we all like. But he's our father, and Jesus is our older brother, and the Spirit is our comforter. And they don't get wigged out by us asking questions. In fact, they invite them. Actually put the questions in the Bible to be on our lips. And yet the problem is true. God's incredible control and power and the excruciating realities we live in between Eden and glory. If you are new to us at Redeemer, please know you are amidst the people who don't really like Pollyanna answers to questions to bypass sin. We're not much for being interested in niceties and platitudes. It's just kind of the way God's made us. It's a, it's a culture that's, um, that, that actually says, hey, unless this stuff works when I have cancer, unless this stuff works amid assault or murder or abuse or neglect or genocide or systematic oppression, unless it works there, and if it doesn't work there, then it's not working. And by grace, this community has been built to keep an eye, head, an eye straight on reality as it is, even in the cruelty of this world but given an eye to try to hold to, to know that God holds us in wondering how to live in the difference. So, we're trying to live in a real world with a real God, with a real hope. Paul gives us some categories through Romans 9 through 11, and I just want to kind of divide divide them up, the first two, into... um, uh, The problem is expressed through us as creatures, and as creator from his perspective. And so one of the things that we come up with when we're talking about this dif- this difficulty is the problem with us, or is a, a problem of, of being creatures ourselves. So we're creatures, right? And so we have a creaturely understanding. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham. This means that it's not the children of the flesh, of God's, of, of like the biology, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. You see, every ethnically Jewish person in the church, and maybe even Paul himself to start, would have thought that they were special. And it was a matter of biology and not necessarily theology. It was a matter of of legacy and not necessarily faith, a matter of DNA. And not necessarily heartfelt trust. And Paul is saying, sure, there is a larger community that people that have got, that have been called the people of God that are favored, but he's not related to every individual in that community in the same way. There's always been, um, there's always been, uh, to use a New Testament language, there's always been the church and the chosen within it. So he says, he goes to and he says, Hey, it was Abe who held to the promise. Not Lot, it was Isaac, not Ishmael, it was Jacob, not Esau. There were a line of promise that existed, even as people of God. Now, now the Venn diagram of the community of, of faith, of the community of salvation, uh, the covenant community, was, is, is, is always overlapped with the, what we call the elect, but, 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 um, but it's not a one-to-one correlation. And so, what this is getting at is a, a several other questions, and um, and it really is a kind of presumed comprehension. It's like a, 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 a presumption that we know how the whole thing works, and it gives us a stymied imagination about what God is saying and who are His people, and 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 and, and even what um, perspective He brings to bear on this, or what perspective we bring to bear on this. And I always think about it like this when we're asking these really tough questions: is is, um, I have a little bit of a, a far side in me, like you know like to think about things from different perspectives, like when I had a little one like Claire's size, I always try to figure out what Claire was thinking, you know and so Claire's in her in her um, crib. She never cries, but if she were to cry, uh, if Claire were to cry, when she's getting ready to go to bed, Claire knows at that point I'm not going to use Claire anymore. A baby knows at that point that you leave her there. That the entire world and all life itself is gone from them. There is no comfort in life anymore. That's why they scream. From their perspective, all is lost. Right? Even though it's good for them and you have perspective on this and you're right there. Or in the morning, I am going to die of hunger now. Right? 100%. There is no chance of anything other than imminent death. Well, oh, that was cool with death, too. Death, death, death. Um, <laughs> it's a perspective thing, and it really does matter. And what it does for us is it, give, it should give us some requisite humility as we attend to the scriptures. We may not understand everything as clearly as we had hoped. Here's how you know you're kind of relying on your paradigm. Versus the scripture yourself. Or at least at least it's a good gut check. When it's not something that comes directly from Scripture and you go, God wouldn't do that. Or that could never happen to a Christian. Or worse, if they were just obedient, that wouldn't have happened to a Christian. God, friends, God's ways and his promises. Let's just say this: his promises are are not tied to our understanding of his promises. Those are two different things. And we comprehend or imagine ways that aren't actually tied to the reality of his promises sometimes. And that's hard because scripture can be very hard to read. It's very confusing at times. It's The main stuff's easy. But D.L. Moody says, I'm glad there are things in the Bible I do not understand. If I could take the book up and read it and I, like I would any other book, then maybe it wouldn't have a defined author. So, from this perspective, this creaturely perspective, we have a creaturely understanding. But we also have a, a creaturely type of valuing or evaluation. And this one's hard. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up. I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name would be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he says, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Paul here teaches that God is in control of life and all of it, even our hearts. He shows mercy on whom he chooses And hardens rebellious hearts. Now, they're all rebellious hearts. And he shows mercy on some and hardens others. And Paul immediately says, we're going to kick against this. This is going to go, wait, that's not fair. That's not free will. That's not possible. God wouldn't do that. And yet Paul, as much as I want him to do this here, doesn't apologize at all. He simply says, that we kind of value the wrong things in this. We're valuing our independence, our agency, our importance. We value our notions of what is fair or logical or good or love or just. We want to be God to be more tame and fit into our worlds a little bit more. Not to mention that we got the language of good and, and the understandings of good and just and love from Him Himself. C.S. Lewis says, We kind of want God to be our grandfather, not our father. Let's just let the people enjoy themselves. Let the kids get along. And in the end, let's just all have a nice day. We value our own stuff over God's ability to choose what should be valued. Now, freedom and self-determination or agency and personal responsibility are important. Good choices, even our own lives, are deeply valuable to God. Our own lives are deeply valuable to God. But they are not ultimate. The ultimate value in the universe is not even about us, but it's about God himself. Now, guess what? It's not about us, but we get to be involved in it because he loves his creation and he brings glory to his name by loving us. And he chooses to redeem a remnant of people to his glory, but it's not about us. It just includes us. It's about him and his ways and his glory, his righteousness, his purposes, his freedom, his self-determination, and his choices. It's where unknown and unknowable remnant, unknowable till glory, an unknowable remnant, get to live in the glory of God that God has in and of himself. That's amazing. But the metaphor he uses here is super simple. Clay. And Potter. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault, God, in us? For he, who could resist his will? I mean, if it's, you know, it's just, what do you do? But who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? What, well, what does molded say to a molder, why have you made me this way? Has the potter no right over his clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Doesn't the potter get to decide that? That's hard. It's really hard. But I don't want you to sit there and just like settle in and be like, oh, I understand it now. You know, I've unraveled the hidden counsel of God. Because that becomes idolatrous in its own right. The gospel will not be easily demystified. God won't be mocked by our pretensions, our belief that we certainly understand him more sounds way too much like the original sin. But what if God is not first and foremost worried about our understanding of him but is more worried about our obedience to him than our understanding of him? And what if he's not as much worried about his obedience to him as as much about our love for him and worship for him than even our understanding or obedience? It's hard. It's very hard. And Paul goes on. Because the problem is not just our clayness, but his potterness. You see, what Paul does is stop and go, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. He is flabbergasted, awed by who this God is. He he, he describes an otherness. I'll talk about what a sayity is later. A a sovereignty, an autonomy that God exists on his own. Listen, we bear the image of God. We are his good creation crowned with glory. We're made a little lower than the angels. And we have been made the keepers of his creation, the vice uh, regents over the world. And we're but dust, And vapors and mist compared to him. Look, friends, there's a reason why we share 98% of DNA with chimpanzees. We're all made out of the same stuff. We're dust, and to dust we will return. He is clay. We are potter. The problem with being clay is you don't know what it's like to be a potter. Even if you're a potter. One of the reasons these chapters are so hard for us is that it's just... We, I'm a clay talking to clays, reading from a person's clay book. Meaning the writer was clay. It's God's book. It's a potter's book he gives to us as clay people. Everything we know about God is, his, is, is by analogy. His kindness, his, loving, his love, his, is, is, is out of his self-revealed world. But it's all analogy. He's father, lord, king... Potter. One of my favorite attributes of God is his otherness, his aseity. Just a fancy theological word for self-existence. He doesn't rely on us. He exists perfectly fine in triune harmony. Perfectly okay with itself. And look, God didn't make us because he needs us, but because he wanted to share his love with us. God wasn't bored. He's kind. He wasn't needy. He's generous. And, and the analogy works this way the, it's the Father. We think the analogy works from our fathers, the earthly fathers, the Father. No, he is the true Father, and we are reflections of that. He is the true Lord, and our Lord's our Lordship is reflections of that. He is g- kindness and justice, and he is king, and we are reflections of that. We only make sense in analogy to him. Eugene Peterson says, our lives are not puzzles to be figured out. Rather, we come to God who knows us and reveals to us the truth of our lives. The fundamental mistake is to begin with ourselves and not with God. God is the center from which our life and our meaning develops. It starts there. And it's precisely from this otherness, this beginning with God, this centering reality, that he shows us what he's doing and how he's doing it. For he says to Moses, I have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who does have mercy. Look, friends, if I had my druthers and I was the potter, I'm not, I'm clay. It would all work out. Everybody, there would be no choices for this way one way or another. Everybody would be in. But I don't know what I'm talking about because I'm clay. And it doesn't seem manageable that way, but guess what else isn't manageable? This grace and this mercy and the love that he brings to bear on it. God has a plan for people. The people of his own choosing to show them his grace, his mercy, and his love God is sovereign and severe in his grace and mercy. At least from our perspectives, we cannot wrap our minds around it. I don't know why he makes vessels for dishonorable use. I don't know why, and I wish it didn't exist, but I don't know better. But please don't let that hard part leave you or take you away from understanding this amazing part, part, this incredible sovereignty is a sovereign mercy that comes our way. He has made pots for honorable use. And you know you're a pot for honorable use if you have come to him. He has shown his mercy, sovereignly shown his mercy to people who never deserved it, were barely, weren't even looking for it, who never earned it. It's an unmanageable grace that he brings to bear. We didn't know how good it was, and we take it for granted sometimes as it is. But it doesn't stop churning our way. It's unchangeable, unquenchable love. The question isn't why some are set for destruction, but why any would be set for salvation. And it is a mystery that we will not be able to reveal. Again, if I were driving up the plan, I'd probably be a universalist, but I'm Clay. And Clay doesn't know what potters do. One day, I hope, that I'll appreciate whatever values are driving this, whatever understanding might be aligned to his. But guess what? He doesn't even promise the clay is going to know it in glory. What he does promise is himself. Because it's not about being a creature or a creator, but it's about the Christ who's brought the two together. We might not have these answers ever, but we have the Christ. God did not fail. Not just because he's God and he cannot, it's not philosophical, God did not fail because he has achieved his plan through Jesus the Christ. From the beginning, God the Father as creator fashions all things and promises to cultivate the earth and, its, and his creatures to care for them and to make them flourish. Even as his people fell, with the same breath, he was, he was putting judgment upon them. In that same breath, he was promising rescue, forgiveness, and restoration through the seed of the woman. In the same breath, he was not going to fail. And then he would make a people for himself called the children of Abraham, who or Abram then, that wealthy polytheistic guy who heard God's voice and left his homeland to become a nomad and follow the voice to trust it. And through that, he would make a line. God would make a people for himself, a people that God himself would bless. Why? So that they would be a blessing. From Abraham, Isaac to Jacob, Jacob named Israel. And though, and through Israel, eventually David, all the way to great David's greater son, Jesus the Christ. And then Jesus would come as God Himself to be with us. He would take on flesh. He would live a life that would fulfill all the obligations of Israel. He would endure life in the fallen world, and he would atone for, die for the sin of all that humanity deserved. He would receive wrath, and then he would rise again, Mm -hmm. vindicating God's plan, demonstrating God's power, asserting that, no, in fact, he never fails, and in, in so doing... He would uphold God's righteousness and not just vindicate that righteousness, but then give that righteousness as a gift to those who are found in him. Romans 9 through 11 isn't about apologizing for the creaturely conundrum our finite and fallen minds are in. It's about declaring the gospel of the Christ. For Christ is the end of the law, chapter 10 says, for righteousness to everyone who believes. So faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. And if we stop there, it would be glorious. It would be wonderful. And yet, as we talked about last week, at the heart of Romans 9 through 11, is both mission and worship. The big so what to all this he's telling people in the church, this is what this means for you. This means that, you, that, there, that there are people all around, and, and, and you can tell them, and there will be those who are his that will be for an honorable purpose. And, and you speak up. Let people know. All these, all these analogies break down because it's only Clay talking about Potter, so it's everything breaks down. But Christopher Wright has a good one. He says the elect in the Bible, always the elect in the Bible, has your elect to be a blessing to others. He says, it says a group of trapped cave explorers chose a couple people to squeeze out through a narrow, flooded passage to get out to the surface. Why? To call for help so that more might be saved. I know it breaks down, but that's the point. That's the drive of it. Our job is to love them all and let God sort them out. We are clay for goodness sake. Our job is not to sit around and figure out, like, who's in and who's out and how we can and just pontificate about those kinds of things. We don't know. It's not for us to, to sit around and wonder, you know, uh, so that we can just be arrogantly confident or, 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 you know. No, it's so that we would have confidence that there are vessels secured by God. So go and tell. The correlation between divine sovereignty and human responsibility is a mystery, and it's okay to live in that mystery. But don't ever declare, conclude that human decisions are are a charade or they're insignificant or trivial. But let's also not rationalize something other than the large and amazing God that puts us in awe either way. Remember where this ends. It ends in worship. And mission and worship are always tied together. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that we have to be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. I told you there was um, another carrot story. And again, all these analogies break down. But as I was reading about the first carrot story, I got into another carrot story that also involves an engagement. But this time, it was planned. This time, the about-to-be fiancé knew his wife loved gardening. And so... Or his future wife would love gardening. And so in planting for the garden, he figured out, and he he did it in like buckets or something like that, he put carrots or carrot um, seeds right in the middle of her ring and dug it down into the bucket. Ninety days later, he remembered which bucket it was. They started harvesting, and she pulls out the ring. She pulls out the ring, and he has it there. He had orchestrated the whole thing and the ring was found. She was active in it. It was fully planned for him, for her. He knew everything, though it is a risk for him. It wouldn't be for God, because he knows soil structures and all that stuff and how everything works work can move seeds around. Well, but like, you get what I'm saying. None of these, all these analogies break down. But the reason I like this so much is because it gets that feel of human responsibility and, and, uh, and, uh, and God's sovereignty, but also because it's about a wedding. It's about love, which is precisely what the gospel's about. So here's what this is for us. This is how you found that. Was your good idea to come to Jesus? Sure. Yes. But think about what that means. How many other carrots are out there for others that we just take to the carrot patch? Yes. God has rings for people that we don't even know about. We can't figure out who's who. So just invite them to this love affair. He ha- he can love them all. He'll sort it out. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us be in awe and wonder of.